If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of a series through this great ministry of the prophet Elijah. And we come this morning to 1 Kings chapter 19. Hear God's word. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he saw and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough. Now, Yahweh, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound, a voice of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh, Father, would you open our eyes that we might see and behold marvelous things in your word. Lord, would you encourage our faint hearts? Would you bind up our broken hearts? Lord, would you help us to learn from this passage all that you would have us to learn. 
Would you transform us by truth and grace together for the glory of Jesus Christ? In his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been misunderstood? Uh, One day when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I think, we had just gotten home from school. And as we were getting out of the car, my mom told me that my piano lesson started in about an hour. And so I asked a simple question in response. So what? Now, maybe I didn't pause long enough between the two words, right? Maybe I didn't ask in the right tone of voice, the tone of voice I intended, which was, so what do you want me to do with that information, right? She heard, so what? Who cares? I don't care what you're telling me. Sent me immediately to my room, right? No afternoon cartoons, no time with friends. Maybe she sent me to piano lessons. I don't recall. I protested, right? That I've been misunderstood. You've misunderstood. That's not what I meant, but to no avail. Well, in a similar way, I believe that Elijah, the prophet, is often misunderstood in our passage this morning. The Elijah of chapter 18 on Mount Carmel and the Elijah of chapter 19 on Mount Horeb seem to be completely different people to the point that many, if not most, commentators and preachers view him in chapter 19 as a fearful, faithless, egotistical, self-pitying, self-concerned, prideful, complaining coward. One commentator puts it like this, just when God needed him the most, the divinely trained prophet was to prove a notable failure. Another writes this, Elijah is transformed by Jezebel into a whippering defeatist. God's question on Horeb implies that Elijah really ought not to be at Mount Horeb complaining, but rather back doing what he was sent to do among the people of Israel. Even the ESV study Bible notes, the shock of Jezebel's resistance after Mount Carmel has led Elijah to forget to think theologically. And on and on and on. So what? What are we, how are we to view Elijah? Are we to view him as quivering in fear at Jezebel's evil cackle, sinfully losing all trust in the Lord and whining like a child who didn't get the toy that he wanted at the toy store? Uh, And then even when God asks him the same question twice, he, he doesn't get it and he gives the same answer both times. Or are we to read between the lines of the text, try to jump inside Elijah's mind and just diagnose him as, ah, he's just a classic manic depressive? Or are we to listen to the text itself, to take another look at the text that God has given to us here in 1 Kings 19? This morning, from the text, I I want to to show you, to try to show you that, that Elijah is not a fearful coward, but on the contrary, he is rather a broken prophet. Not broken in the sense of improperly or sinfully functioning, but broken in the sense of broken-hearted, despondent over the unrepentant apostasy of Israel. He's not quaking in fear or wallowing in in self-centeredness. He is groaning in utter disappointment at Israel's sin and their hardness of heart that continues to reject the Lord's word and the Lord's deeds. God is not rebuking Elijah on Horah, but rather he is listening to him levy a covenant accusation against Israel. He is encouraging him that he has a plan in place, a plan of judgment and salvation. And he is giving Elijah a new direction in his ministry that will set the stage for what is to follow. 
And in this approach to the text, I, I want to say on the front end that I am following my Old Testament professor, Ralph Davis. Some of you know Ralph Davis from uh, when he was a member here at this church while he taught Old Testament and Hebrew at RTS. Uh, others of you have read his commentaries. You have uh, heard him preach. Uh, he and I have a, a funny history of proximity together. Uh, a year before I graduated seminary and was called to pastor Columbia Presbyterian Church, he was called down to Hattiesburg to pastor Woodland. Presbyterian Church. So I come to Columbia and, and we're in the same Presbytery and, and every once in a while, uh, unexpected, out of the blue, Ralph and Barbara would appear in the, the, the congregation of Columbia Presbyterian Church and it just inevitably seemed to happen when I was preaching an Old Testament passage, sometimes even one that he had written a commentary on, right? And maybe I was quoting his commentary in the, in the book. So it's a little bit awkward, a little bit nerve wracking for me. Uh, well, when I went to him and said, hey, Ralph, the Lord's called us up to Cookville, Tennessee. He said, well, that's funny. That's where we're retiring in a couple of years. Like crazy. So after we had moved to Cookville, Ralph shows up with Barbara. There they are. They're living in Cookville again. I'm preaching through Old Testament books that he's written commentaries on. Uh, I'm halfway expecting him to, to show up while we're preaching the series in, in 1 Kings, right? To, to, to just say, hey, I'm here again. I'm following you everywhere you go. Uh, now, here, here's the, the thing. As a preacher... You have to be careful when you use Ralph's commentaries. Why? Because he's so insightful. He, he's so uh, wise and skillful in handling the text. If you look at his books too early, right, you will never be able to preach an original sermon, right? Because you, you can't see the text any other way but the way Ralph has seen it. So and you have to do your work first and you have to figure out how am I going to understand this text? How am I going to structure this text? Then you can look at Ralph's commentaries at the end of the week, all right? Uh, now, I'm only halfway joking, uh, but I do want to say uh, that with this passage, I'm heavily borrowing from Ralph and the way he approaches this text because I don't think anyone else gets it the way that he does, and, and certainly no one explains it the way that he does. So this morning, as we look at Elijah, as we look at this story, I want us to learn several things. And the first is I want you to see the despondency of God's broken-hearted servant, the despondency of God's broken-hearted servant. If, to get you to see this, you need to, 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 to see a few of the reasons why we ought not to, to accept the majority report uh, of this chapter. Elijah is not a fearful and, and faithless coward. He is a broken-hearted servant. Why do, why do I think that? Well, well, first, I think we need to weigh the text now, you may have noticed that when I was reading in verse 3, I didn't say, then he was afraid, the way the ESV has it. I said, then he saw. You see, the, the traditional Hebrew text reads, and he saw. But a few Hebrew manuscripts and some of the ancient translations of the Hebrew read, and he was afraid. Now, unfortunately, the ESV doesn't uh, alert us with a footnote that there is this textual issue and these textual variants. You see, in the Hebrew, these two words, and he saw and he was afraid, look nearly identical. So how can we tell which one is original? Well, uh, one of the primary ways we do this is to ask the question, uh, which reading best explains the other? What I mean is this, uh, is it more reasonable to assume that he was afraid was the original text and ascribe as he was copying the text down, uh, he changed it to he saw. Is that more reasonable or vice versa? He saw was original and the scribe changed it to he was afraid. Well, uh, the words in, in verse uh, three at the end or in the middle there, when it says he arose and ran for his life, uh, on the surface appear to, to fit more easily with the, the reading he was afraid. Uh, 
So if, if that verb were the original, it's odd and strange to think that a scribe would have changed it to he saw, right? And that that reading would have then shown up in, in, in the bulk of the Hebrew manuscripts. But if he saw were the original, then you can imagine and understand how a, a copyist would have said, well, wait a minute, this has to be a mistake. Someone had to have written he saw erroneously because he's running for his life. It must be that the original was he was afraid. And so he changed it to he was afraid. That's an easier reading. Now, that may be kind of confusing. You say, what in the world are you talking about? The point is this. Oftentimes, the harder reading is the best reading. And I think in this case, it is it is true that we ought to read, he saw, that that was the original text. But assuming that he saw is the correct verb, what does it mean? How does it fit the context of this passage? Well, think about where we are in the story of Elijah. Yahweh has just demonstrated on Mount Carmel that he was the only true God. Ahab, instead of going home and deposing Jezebel and, and completely changing the way he ran his kingdom, instead goes to Jezebel and tattletales on Elijah. Let me tell you all these things Elijah did and how he killed all the prophets of Baal. And so what does Jezebel do? She, in response, threatens his life. Right? In a day, you're going to die. And so Elijah does what? He sees. He saw. He realized. He recognized. He got it. That Carmel had changed nothing. As Ralph puts it, he recognized that Jezebel is still wearing the pantyhose and the pants in the family, right? He leaves, not because he was afraid of Jezebel or afraid of dying, but because he was a brokenhearted prophet, a downcast prophet, a despondent prophet over Israel's ongoing idolatry and rebellion. He certainly doesn't want Jezebel to kill him and to be able to, to boast as if somehow Baal is a greater God than Yahweh. But notice in verse four, in his brokenness, in his sorrow, he does actually ask the Lord to take his life. But why? Because he has seen, he has recognized that he is no better than his fathers. Just like the godly servants of God before him, he had been trying to step on the brakes of, of Israel's national plunge into godlessness and destruction. But now he sees that the brakes are out. There are no brakes. The brakes are gone. And so he is, as it were, turning in his, in his resignation, saying, Lord, take me. I, I, I can't do anything else. I'm done. Elijah is not a faithless coward. He's a brokenhearted servant. And this is confirmed if we see a, a second piece of information from the text, if we read the map and listen to angels. Notice where Elijah goes when he leaves Jezreel. He goes to Beersheba. Where is Beersheba? If you look at the map, Beersheba is 100 miles south of Jezreel, all the way down at the bottom of Judah. Now, if, in fact, Elijah had been afraid of, of Jezebel, uh, he could have found shelter from her just a little bit south of Jezreel in Jerusalem, right? The capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. He could have taken shelter under King Jehoshaphat. Why does he go all the way to the bottom of Judah. And then once he's in Beersheba, why does he leave his servant there and go even further out into the wilderness a day's journey? It's, it's only there that he actually asks to die. But notice Yahweh doesn't give him death, does he? 
Rather, when Elijah in his sorrow and despondency lays down to sleep under this broom tree, the the angel of Yahweh comes and and nudges him and, and wakes him up and sustains him with bread and with water. When you read the word cake there, don't think birthday cake, right? Think pancake, right? It's a a loaf of bread that he's baked on hot coals and, and, and there supernaturally, powerfully, he has provided food and drink for Elijah. You you see it again when Elijah goes back to sleep, uh, the angel comes again and and wakes him up again and, and tells him a second time, you need to eat and drink. And notice what the angel says to him, for the journey is too great for you. What journey? Is he talking about the journey he just made? Hey, you need to, you know, regain your strength. No, no. Verse eight indicates and makes clear he's referring to the journey he's about to take, the journey to Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, which is another 200 plus miles south. The point is this, the map of Elijah's wandering would suggest to us a plan rather than panic and terror and abdication of duty. No, so instead of thinking that God is rebuking Elijah for going to Horeb, the words of the angel actually point us in a different direction. They show us that there is divine authorization for this trip, even divine enabling and sustenance. Yes, we don't see the traditional formula, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go to Mount Sinai. And yet it makes far more sense to understand Horeb as Elijah's destination from the very beginning. When he saw that Carmel had changed nothing in Israel, though yes, he nearly gave up and wished for death to come in the wilderness, what did God do but appear and sustain his servant for the journey to Horeb. God wanted to meet with Elijah on his covenant mountain, which brings us to the the third and and final uh, little way that we see that Elijah is not a faithless coward, but a brokenhearted servant. Ponder the parallels. Ponder the parallels. Verse eight calls Mount Horeb the Mount of God. We could also call it the mountain of Moses, the covenant mountain. Why? Because Horeb, Mount Sinai was the mountain where God first entered into covenant with his people, Israel, where he gave the 10 commandments and constituted them as his holy nation. You remember that for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses, the servant of God was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. But what was Israel doing while Moses was on the mountain of of, of Horeb for 40 days and 40 nights? Well, they were worshiping the golden calf. They were dancing around the golden calf and, 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 and eating and drinking and playing. And so Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, shatters, throws the 10 commandments, the two tablets on the ground. He goes back up onto the mountain for another 40 days and 40 nights, fast for that whole period. And what's he doing during that season? Well, in Exodus 33 and 34, we realize and we read that Moses is interceding for Israel. And that covenant intercession leads by the grace of God to covenant renewal. You see, it's no accident that Elijah is fasting for 40 days and 40 nights on his journey down to Sinai. Israel had been unfaithful to God's covenant yet again, but even more egregiously this time, not merely worshiping Yahweh, the one true God in the form of a golden calf, but now worshiping another God altogether, Baal and Asherah. And so Elijah is not coming to intercede for Israel as Moses was. Elijah is coming to bring a covenant accusation against Israel, which will lead to God's covenant judgment. Did you hear it in Romans 11 when we read, as Paul understood it, 
Right? We're not dealing with a whimpering or an egocentric prophet. We are dealing with one who is coming to make an appeal to the Lord against Israel. There seems to be this preliminary hearing in verses 9 and 10. And then in verses 13 and 14, a formal lodging of the charges before Yahweh. Elijah speaks to God as a covenant lawyer laying out evidence for the prosecution because of Israel's breach of covenant. As he says there in verses 10 and 14, the people of Israel had forsaken God's covenant. They had thrown down his altars. They had killed his prophets with the sword. And now they were seeking his life and he alone was left. Now true, Obadiah had hidden a hundred prophets in the cave, but Elijah was the only prophet who was publicly prophesying, publicly standing up against Baalism. And yes, true, there had been this mini revival there at Mount Carmel, but again, he had seen, it was clear that, that nothing was going to change. Jezebel was still in power. She still was seeking to kill him. He's not having a pity party here on Horeb. He's not complaining that things aren't going his way. But again, he is despondent. He is downcast. Why? Because he sees the sin of Israel. He is grieved at their hard-heartedness. And so he himself is broken-hearted. Do you see the point? Elijah, as James reminds us, is a man just like us, particularly in his disappointment. He is a man just like us in his grief and his brokenheartedness. But the question is, are we men and women just like Elijah? You see, Elijah's telling us the truth when he says that he had been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. Elijah was concerned tremendously with the infidelity of the professing people of God, with their syncretism and their idolatry. And therefore, for that reason, he was despondent. He was downcast. He was depressed. He was brokenhearted. Because of Yahweh's interests, Yahweh's altars, Yahweh's prophets, Yahweh's covenant, those were being rejected and shunned. Elijah had this one holy passion, God. His was a, a God-centered despondency. But how often is our despondency self-centered? How often is our despair because we aren't getting what we want? Because Things aren't turning out the way we wanted them to. Rather than taking thought for what God and his word and his will is. So ask yourself, what stirs you to anger? What causes you to become faint of heart and despondent and brokenhearted? Are you jealous for Yahweh, for his worship, for his word? Are you brokenhearted when his word is despised and rejected? If you are, and this text brings us great hope and encouragement. For in the second place, not only do we see the despondency of, of the Lord's brokenhearted servant, we also see the tenderness of God's ministry to the brokenhearted. You see, if Elijah is indeed not a fearful, prideful failure, but a brokenhearted servant, that changes how we understand God's response to him. Remember, God has always already fed Elijah with bread and water by the time he gets to Horeb. He's already sustained him in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights. And so when he comes to Horeb, it stands to reason that he is not rebuking Elijah for being in the wrong place or for his fearfulness when he asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Instead, we should see that question as 
an invitation. An invitation to state his case against Israel, to unburden his heart to God. Elijah, tell me all about it. Tell me what's on your heart. Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me why you're here at this covenant mountain that I have enabled you to come to and encouraged you to come to. See, it's a question of pastoral tenderness. It's a question of allowing the prophet to pour out his heart to the Lord, to unburden his mind, his soul to the Lord. God is listening to Elijah, you see. He's giving him a hearing. He's extending kindness to him. He's drawing near to the brokenhearted, as Psalm 34 puts it. Now, of course, God already knows the answer to his question, but there is a gentleness to God's allowing his despondent, brokenhearted servant to talk, to share. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been faint and, and feeble and, and brokenhearted and, and downcast. And what we really want is just an opportunity to tell our story and to, to, to express our pain and our sorrow to be heard. How does Job put it in Job chapter 6, verse 14? For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend. And of course, Job didn't get that, this, that kindness, did he? But Elijah does. This is exactly what God is doing for Elijah, showing him kindness. How refreshing is this picture of God in the midst of life's ups and downs, in the midst of ministry's ups and downs. When you have given yourself away to serve the Lord and his people and nothing seems to be happening positively, nothing seems to be changing, everything seems to be going the wrong direction. You grow down, downcast, despondent. But what does the Lord do? He welcomes you into his heavenly throne room. He welcomes you to, to come and to tell him everything that is on your mind. What are you doing here? Tell me about it. Tell me all about it. I know it already, but come and, and tell me everything that's going on in your life. Now, to be sure, Elijah is unique as the prophet of God and his role as, as covenant prosecutor. But the God of Elijah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His tender mercy will always be there for you, his brokenhearted people. But God's ministry to the brokenhearted doesn't merely consist, does it, in listening and understanding. And that brings us to the, the third thing that we see in this text. God also speaks truth. And I want you to see the power of God's quiet word. And we haven't yet noticed one of the most fascinating parts of this story, God's revelation to Elijah on Mount Sinai. God reveals himself to his servant, but in a different way than he did back in Exodus 19 and 20 when he revealed himself to Israel on Mount Sinai. You remember there that God descended on the mountain in smoke and in thunder and fire and lightning and earthquake. But here, as, a, as Yahweh passes by, this great and strong wind tears the mountain into to small little pieces of rock before Yahweh. But verse 11 tells us that Yahweh was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire. And then there was a sound, or better translated, a voice, a low whisper. And Elijah knows that God is in the still and quiet whisper of a voice. Because in verse 13, it says that he covers his face and he comes out of the cave. God has appeared to him in a way perhaps Elijah wasn't expecting. 
Just as God had covered Moses with his hand as he passed by, so now God is condescending to speak to Elijah in gentleness. This low whisper is the same voice that will speak in verses 13 and 15. God's voice may not be loud and spectacular like windstorms and and firestorms and earthquakes. It may not be as spectacular as it was on Mount Carmel all the time. But God's word, though quiet and a low whisper, is powerful nonetheless. And here we see his word, powerful, directing history, powerfully bringing judgment upon the wicked and powerfully preserving a people for his own possession. God's word, though quiet, does not imply that God's word is inactive. What does he say to Elijah? He sends him forth, doesn't he? With a commission to anoint three men. First, Haziel, the king over Syria, Jehu, king over Israel, and Elisha as prophet in his place. And as verse 17 makes clear, these three men will be God's instruments of judgment upon his covenant people. God is saying essentially to Elijah, Elijah, you are right about my people. I agree with your assessment. Therefore, go and anoint these instruments of my judgment upon them. But notice what else God says, that in his wrath, he will remember mercy. He will not only bring judgment, he will bring salvation. He encourages Elijah in his despondency that his grace is still operative. Yes, he will bring judgment on those who reject his word, but he will have a remnant. What does he say? He will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, every mouth that has not kissed him. God will maintain and build his church and Ahab and Jezebel cannot stop it. What an encouragement this would have been to the brokenhearted prophet to see that God has not failed, that God's word will never fail, that God's grace will triumph over all. And isn't this what Paul picks up in Romans 11, as we saw this morning After recounting parts of this story, Paul draws the parallel to the days of the new covenant today. He said, in the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God is saying, I am the sovereign God, Elijah. The God who has mercy on whom he'll have mercy. It will be gracious to whom he will be gracious, who will show compassion to whom he will show compassion. I am the sovereign God who has chosen a people for myself. I have a remnant and I will save them powerfully by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ, the only savior, the one who himself, like Moses and Elijah, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Why? in order to perfectly obey the Lord in our place to defeat Satan. The Lord Jesus, who himself is the word of God, who is the glory of God, who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with whom? With Elijah and with Moses, who had seen the glory of God in the old covenant, but only in part. And now they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what they talk about there on the mountain, do you remember Jesus' exodus? his departure that he was about to accomplish for his people, his death on the cross, which is where the glory of God is most beautifully seen. 
Jesus Christ, the Savior of God's people. God saves his elect by faith in Christ. How vital it is that we, like Elijah, remember this truth of God having a remnant when we are tempted to grow faint and despondent and brokenhearted. God's word is going forth with strength and with power. Do not lose heart. The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the word of God and the glory of God, though that word is low as a whisper, is powerfully working in God's world. He will always have a room. No matter how bad things look outside the church, no matter how bad things look inside the church, God has his people, his saints, those whom he knows, those who know him truly. What does Paul say? The Lord knows those who are his. There will be a remnant and he will, yes, eventually bring all wickedness to judgment as we see even here in this story. And he will save his people from all their sins. Brothers and sisters, wherever you might be this morning, if you see in this story yourself and in, in, in Elijah's despondency and brokenheartedness, take heart. Find hope in the encouragement that God gave to Elijah, both listening to him, understanding him, and speaking this word of solemn judgment and a word of sovereign grace. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this story to encourage our faint hearts. Oh Lord, would you meet your brokenhearted people even as you met Elijah? Would you listen to them? Would you give them utterance to pour out their hearts to you. And Lord, would you speak again the peace of your gospel triumph to our hearts. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have given to us your word. We thank you, oh Lord, that you are the sovereign God, that you always have your remnant. Oh Lord, would you, by your grace, make it to be so that everyone who hears my voice might have a new heart, a new spirit, be born again to a living faith in Jesus Christ, a living hope an eternal life that can only come through the gospel. Oh Lord, may everyone in the sound of my voice call on the name of Jesus in humble faith and be saved. Oh Father, we plead with you and we trust that you will do that work in those that you have chosen from before the foundation of the world. So come, we pray, Lord God, and do what only you can do by your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.